It is a land of tremendous beauty. High, soaring mountains and deep, rich valleys. And it's here, in this land, John prepares the way for light to heal darkness. A young virgin carries a promise toward Bethlehem, where shepherds, scholars, and angels wonder at the bright star born in a humble cave. Now, together, we welcome you into our hearts. Light our lives with the power of hope, peace, joy, and love undimmed by centuries and manifest in this one truth. Christ is coming. Well, I know it, it sounds unbelievable, but Christmas is almost here. I know yesterday felt like September, but it, it is almost Christmas time, which means that for us, uh, we begin this weekend the season of Advent. And I want to tell you a little bit about what Advent means. Advent is about preparation. It's about pre preparing ourselves for the celebration of Christmas. But when you think about preparing for Christmas, there's probably lots of things that, that fill your mind. You probably think about the tree that may or may not have gotten up this weekend, the, the lights that need to be hung on the house, the decorations that need to be set out, the, the gifts that need to be bought, and the gifts that need to be wrapped, and all the things that you need to prepare in the coming weeks for the celebration of Christmas. And all those things are good things. They are, they are good things that we do to, to celebrate Christmas. But when we talk about Advent and the preparations that we are doing uh, in these weeks leading up to Christmas, we're we're talking about something a little bit differently. We are preparing ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus, a moment that we believe changed everything for all, all time. So we're preparing to celebrate that moment, and, and we're also preparing to, to, to consider in these weeks where we still need Jesus to come. In our lives, in our hearts, in our circumstances, in the things that we are dealing with, the reality of our lives, but also in our world, we are, we are considering where do we still need Jesus to come. And that's, that's what the journey of Advent is, is really all about. And we're going to do that in a variety of ways. We're going to do that through a series of messages, which I'll, I'll say a little bit more about in, in just a moment. We're going to do so with uh, our time of devotion. And so, uh, as you heard, Pastor Tina, in the opening of the service, I hope you'll pick up uh, this family Advent guide, it includes uh, a scripture reading and some reflection for, uh, for you for each day of this journey over the next four weeks, as well as for families, some exercises that you can do uh, with your kids to help them remember what this season is really uh, all about. So at, at the exit, you can pick one of those up. That's one of the ways that we're going to prepare together. We're also going to prepare through several special events. So you already heard about our remembrance service next week for those who want to gather and remember a loved one that they have lost in this year or in years past uh, during this season. On the 14th of December, here in this service, you're going to get a preview uh, of the orchestra and choir cantata that you're going to be blessed with. The full performance will be that evening at 6 p.m. I know you'll want to be here for that. You got a little taste of that today. You'll get so much more here in a few weeks. You'll certainly want to be here for that. And then everything in this season culminates for us with Christmas Eve. 
And we'll have eight opportunities for you to celebrate Christmas Eve, so I'm sorry, there are no excuses. We have eight opportunities for you to come and and be here on Christmas Eve, and all of those services will end in the exact same way with the distribution of the light of Christmas throughout this sanctuary space, and we will sing Silent Night, and when that moment comes, we can know that Christmas will finally be here. On Christmas Eve, we're also going to be receiving a special offering to bless a ministry that that we care very deeply about. And I want to tell you more about that ministry and share with you something I've been doing in recent months to participate in that blessing by showing you this video. Let's watch that now. My day's work won't begin for a few hours. But there is something I need to do first. Over the last several years, I have run over a thousand miles. Not for myself or any benefit I might receive, but for hope. I run to invite those who care about me to care about boys and girls living in a very different world from mine. Kids who need help. Kids who see hope as a distant dream. It's about heroes, which is Zoe. My hero Zoe that helped me, cares for me as my, my own mother, as my own parents. And I was hopeless, and Zoe came, and now I'm surviving. I have a hope. And the last one says, Jeremiah 29:11. Okay, wait for Zoe. She got a goat. She runs business. Can make money. Her next goal is to buy a car. Every dollar you give supports Zoe Ministry, an organization moving children from a life of begging for a handout to a life where they can sustain themselves and fulfill their own dreams of contributing to their community. Every dollar is another step towards setting those dreams free. Would you help me bring hope? It's why I got out of bed this morning and why I'm running today. Hope changes everything. If you'd like to support Miles for Hope, please visit hoperunners.org. I believe there are a few things of greater significance that we are doing together as a family of faith and what we are doing in partnership with Zoe Ministry uh, to help these kids uh, in Rwanda. Uh, I heard a pastor say once that the most significant thing in your life may not be something that you do. It may be someone that you help raise. Maybe a leader that you invest in. It may be a child growing up in your own home or it may be a child on the other side of the world who, who was living a life of hopelessness. But because of generosity and because of, of people who care, that, that hope might, might be restored. Uh, there's multiple ways that you can uh, give to support Zoe. You can certainly do so electronically via that link that's uh, in the video. You can also do so any weekend by uh, sharing a gift and uh, writing on your check or envelope, Miles for Hope or Zoe Ministry. It all goes to the same place. Or you can come Christmas Eve. Uh, and every dollar that uh, we receive in our offerings from all those eight services will go uh, to Zoe Ministry. We want you to know about that. If you were here in the weeks leading up to Easter, you know that uh, Mike and I shared a series, uh, Discovering the Holy Land. We had just gotten back uh, from a trip to the Holy Land with about 60 individuals from our church, and our hope in that series was to take you on that same journey. 
as we walked in those weeks leading up to Easter and looked at those places that, that connected with that Lenten story and with that Easter journey. And what we're starting today in this series is really part two of that previous series. We're going to be taking you to those places which connect with the Christmas story from our trip to the Holy Land this last February. And just in case you weren't here, I want to situate ourselves first by giving you a broad perspective of what we mean when we say the Holy Land. So let me show you this map first, and you will see there in the north the city of Nazareth, or really the village of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Uh, It's the place where the angel came to to Mary to announce that she was going to have a child. We'll, We'll go to Nazareth next week as we remember that part of the story. You see the city of Capernaum, uh, the place where Jesus would come to live when he started his public ministry. Most of Jesus's public ministry was located in the northern part of the Holy Land around the Sea of Galilee, that, that body of water you see there in the north. The Sea of Galilee enters, uh, empties itself into the Jordan River which flows down the center of what you see there as modern-day Israel. Uh, The Jordan River empties itself into the Dead Sea, that larger body of water at the bottom of the map, the lowest point on the earth, just north of the Dead Sea. You see the city of Jericho, and then you look uh, to the west, you find the city of Jerusalem. And then just south of Jerusalem, you find Bethlehem, uh, the city of David. Uh, Again, next week we're going to go to Nazareth. In week three and week four of this series, we'll go to Bethlehem. Week three, we'll go to the shepherd's fields, the the place where the shepherds first heard the news that Jesus, the Messiah, was born. And then in the final week of the series, we'll go uh, to the church in the nativity, the place which marks the birthplace of Jesus. But today, I want to take you to Jerusalem, to the southwest portion of the modern uh, city of Jerusalem, to a place called Ein Karim, uh, an area where you will find this church uh, known as the Church of St. John the Baptist. Go ahead and go to that uh, next picture there. This is a, a picture of the church uh, as you enter into the courtyard. And then the next picture you're going to see is the interior of the courtyard. And lining uh, the interior of that courtyard are these pieces of art which have on them the scripture that we just read, the Song of Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist. Uh, There are many different uh, pieces of these art because they're all written in different languages surrounding the courtyard. As you enter into the sanctuary, this is what you will see. You see the altar there. Uh, You see a woman there in the center. You might think that that is Mary. That is, in fact, Elizabeth, uh, the mother of John the Baptist. Uh, down the side aisles of this sanctuary space, if you go to the left and down a set of stairs, this is what you will find there, an altar that has been placed there in in the rock, Uh, and this place is the place that marks the birthplace of John the Baptist. One more picture there uh, showing that altar and that place in the floor again, which marks uh, that sacred space. Again, one of the places that people come uh, in the Holy Land to remember this portion of the story. If you look at the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, if you look at the beginning of, of their stories, not all of them start their stories with the birth of Jesus. Mark begins with John and his ministry, uh, uh, preparing the way for Jesus. If you look at the Gospel of John, John tells the story of Jesus' birth, but he tells it in a very different way than Matthew or Luke do. He, he, he tells it very briefly. He talks about the light coming into the world. He speaks of Jesus' entry into the world in a more metaphorical way. But it's Matthew and Luke that share for us the, the Christmas story. But all four Gospel writers tell us about John. 
the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus' entry into the world. And it's the Gospel of Luke that backs up the story of John the furthest by telling us about how his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, heard that they were going to have this special son. And that's the scripture that I want to read to you today. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, this is what we find there. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of a word that I can't pronounce and you can't either. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, there are a few important details that Luke has just told us that we might miss because we are not first century Jews. There are some details that a first century Jew would immediately pick up on that we may not, that I want to point out to you. The first is that Luke has located this story in the time of King Herod. And what that would mean to a first century Jew is that this was a time of great difficulty and great challenge for the nation of Israel. It would be like one of us telling a story and beginning by saying this happened during the Great Depression. Now, most of us didn't live through the Great Depression, but we know what that means, right? We would know that that story was set at a time of great difficulty and challenge for our nation. And that's what Luke has done here. He's reminded the reader that this happened at that, in that particular time period, a time of great difficulty and great challenge for the people of Israel. He's also introduced us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, and he's told us some important things about them. The first thing he's told us is that Zechariah is a priest in the temple. Now keep in mind, there's not like a temple in every street corner at this point. There is a temple. There is the temple in Jerusalem, the place where Jews would come to offer their sacrifices. And Zechariah is one of the priests who is able to enter into the temple, the place that was thought to be the literal dwelling place of God. So Zechariah, in other words, is a big deal, okay? He is a priest in the temple. He has a very important role in the Jewish community serving in that capacity. The other thing that Luke has told us about his wife Elizabeth, he makes a point of pointing out to us that Elizabeth is, from, uh, is, this, is a descendant of Aaron. Now Aaron, you'll remember, was the older brother of Moses. Aaron was the first priest of Israel. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, and the Levites, those who descended from Aaron, were set aside to be priests for Israel. In other words, again, this, this doesn't mean anything to us today, but it meant something to a first century Jew, that Zechariah and Elizabeth ha- have come together as, as both members of the tribe of Levi. They have married within their tribe. There is ancestral purity in their marriage and in their relationship. So these were people who had done things right. And then verse 6, Luke makes it even more clear to us. He says, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. They were people who had followed the Lord's commands. These these were people who were not only respected in their community because of the role that Zechariah had as a priest in the temple and because of their marriage, both being from from the tribe of Levi, but also because these were people who lived it. I mean, they lived it. They were righteous people. They had followed the Lord's commands and the Lord's decrees. And then we get to verse 7. Luke says this, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. 
So what we know so far is that Zechariah is a priest. He's a big deal. He has an important role in the community. He was a well-respected member of the community. That, 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 that Elizabeth and Zechariah were both righteous people, but we get to verse 7 and we understand that, that they have not been able to have a child. And we may hear that today and may think, well, that's really sad. I mean, they both sound like really good people, really nice people. It sounds like Zechariah would be a great father. It sounds like Elizabeth would be a great mother. That's really sad that they weren't able to have a child. But for a first century Jew, it was more than that. It was more than just a sad story. It was a story that didn't make sense. And Luke, Luke wants us to know the tension of that story. He, and that's why he points out to us that these are righteous people. They were blameless people, but they were childless. Because at that time, the assumption was that if you were a righteous person, blessing went with that. If you lived rightly, if you did what God wanted you to do, if you followed the decrees and the commands that blessings would surely follow that way of life. And for a woman, there was no greater blessing than to be able to have a child. So verse 6 and verse 7, we are meant to read that and say, well, that doesn't make sense. We're supposed to wonder, what was the reason for that? It's certainly a question that these parents had asked of themselves. And Luke wants us to know really how tragic this story is because he takes the time to tell us that they were both very old. I'm sure they appreciated Luke describing them in that way. They were very old. Luke wants to make sure that you know that not only had they been unable to conceive a child, to, to have a, a son or a daughter. But they were well beyond the, the period of life where they would expect to have, to have a child. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, uh, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now as you hear verse 13 don't forget verse 7, okay? What Luke has told you is these are righteous people. These are good people. These are blameless people. These are well-respected people in their community who have not been able to have a child. Oh, and by the way, they're very old is what Luke wants you to know. In other words, they are well beyond the season of life where they could expect to have a child. So follow the logic with me here. If you are well beyond the season of life where you could expect to have a child, you're probably also well beyond the season of life where you would be praying to have a child, <laughs> right? So when the angel says, your prayer has been heard, I mean, imagine what Zachariah's thinking. Have you ever put something in the mail a letter, maybe it was an invitation to a party. You sent a, an invitation out, and months later, it came back to you. Like, you did everything right. You had the address right. You had the return address. You had the proper postage. But for some reason, it didn't end up at its intended destination. And maybe you were mad at the person who didn't show up at the party and then later found out they never really got the invitation. You know, again, you, you can't help but wonder, well, what happened to this letter 
I mean, I dropped it in the mail. It should have been there three days later, but I guess it went to Albuquerque or somewhere else. I don't know what happened, but it came back to me months, months later. Imagine what Zechariah is thinking. You've heard my prayer. Where has it been? I mean, what, what, did it get put in the wrong slot up there? I, we, we prayed that decades ago. We're praying different things now. We're not, we're not praying for that anymore. What do you mean my prayer? My prayer has been heard. We're going to have a, a son. This is, what, this is how it continues. The, the, the angel says, he will be in a, jo- a joy and a delight to you, which he must have been thinking, well, good, because I'm old. I, don't, I can't have a child. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, which was a way of saying he's going to be set aside for a special purpose. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel has come to not only say, you're having a son, but you're having a really, really important son. He's going to do amazing things filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his birth in the power of Zachari- in the power of Elijah. And then listen to how Zechariah responds. How can I be sure of this? In other words, are you sure you have the right Zechariah? <laughs> How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until that, the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And then skipping down to verse 23, it says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now from here, Luke's immediately going to go to Nazareth. And we're going to go to that, that, that moment where Mary, a young teenage girl who is engaged to Joseph, is also going to hear some pretty extraordinary news. Mary is going to go to the home of her cousin, which just happens to be Elizabeth. She's going to spend a few months there. And then Mary and Joseph, you know the rest of the story, they're going to go to Bethlehem to participate in the census. While there, there's going to be no room at the end, no place for them to sleep. And so they're going to find a place to rest with the livestock. And there in that place of no importance, the Savior of the world is going to be born. Not in a palace, but in that, in that place. And the word of his coming is not going to be heard by the powerful and the, and the ruling elite, but rather by shepherds, the poor, who will hear of his coming. And this, this son, who, who, who is the Messiah, the one who's going to be the king of his people to set them free, he will spend the first few years of his life on the run, his parents taking him as far as Egypt to protect him from the threats of, of King Herod. This scene that we see today here of Zechariah hearing this amazing word from the angel, it's only the first scene in an amazing and incredible story. 
when I was a freshman in high school, I signed up to take a class called Disciple Bible Study. Uh, and I did so because while at the time I knew a lot of things about the Bible, I'd been raised in the church, I'd gone to Sunday school my whole life, my dad was the pastor, it was kind of required. I was pretty good at Bible drills, you know, I had all that going for me, but I, I really had no idea what this book had to do with my life. And I wanted to figure that out. I, I wanted to figure that out for myself. What, is this, what does this book have to do with me? And, and in reading this book, what, h- how does this... How does this have any connection to me and to my circumstances and, and, and to my life? Does this, does this mean something for me? And up until that point in my life, I really didn't know how to read the Bible in such a way that the Bible would somehow speak back to me and, and influence me and direct me. I just didn't know what that meant or what it looked like. And over the course of that 34 weeks, as we walked through the entire Bible, my youth pastor helped us with that process of how do you, how do you engage the scriptures and how do, you, how do you reflect on them and allow them to speak in your life. And he did so by sharing with us three simple questions, which for me really still guide how I read the Bible today. And the three questions are this. First, what does this say about God? You pick up any scripture, any, any portion of the Bible, and you read it and you ask the question, well, what does this say about God? What, is this, what does this say about God's character and who God is and how God sees the world and how God sees humanity? What, what do I learn about God from this passage of scripture? The second question is, what does this say about us? What does this say about humanity? There are characters in this story who are interacting with the divine, and, and while they lived at a different time and a different place than I lived, they were, they were human beings just like I am, so what does this say about us? What's the common thread that we find here, the human condition that we we see in the scripture? And then the third question is, what does this say about our relationship with God, God's relationship with with humanity? So, So I bring those questions to the text today, and I cannot help but think this, that God loves to surprise us. Like, that's one of the things that God just delights in doing, is surprising us and shocking us. If there's anything that puts a smile on God's face, that fills heaven with the sound of God's laughter and joy, it's when he gets to surprise us. And when, it's when he gets to show up in our life in a way that we never expected, when he answers a prayer that we prayed decades before, when he shows up in a way that we did not expect, God loves to do that. And you find that throughout the scriptures. It's a common theme. God loves to surprise us and use us in surprising ways. But when I bring those next two questions to, to this text, I cannot help but think, That it's our beliefs about God, our assumptions about God and about ourselves and how the world works. What's the reality? What are the limitations that we face? It's our assumptions about those things that often lead us to miss the ways that God is seeking to surprise us. That like Zechariah, sometimes I can't see in myself or in my circumstances the same potential that God sees. And what ends up happening in the process is I miss the way that God might be seeking to surprise me and surprise you. You know from the video that I've spent a lot of time uh, this fall uh, out running, training for uh, what will be my fifth marathon. I'm running in a couple weeks uh, in Dallas. Um, and having run several races in the past, there's, there's an advantage and a disadvantage to that. The advantage is that I've done it before. So I know I'm going to finish. 
I mean, I, I may have to crawl, but I know I'm going to fish. I've done it before. It's not a mountain that I have not climbed, in other words. I, I, I've done it before. I know I can finish. I know I'll, I'll be okay. The disadvantage is I've done it before, <laughs> which means that I know exactly how bad it's going to hurt. I mean, I, I have an intimate knowledge of the suffering that will be involved in that day. I know the pain that I'm going to feel in my hips and my legs, pain that I haven't experienced at any other time in my life. I know what it's going to feel like the next day on Monday when I come to work and I have to walk up the stairs to my office and walk down this. I know the pain of that experience and that can be a little bit intimidating as you prepare yourself again for that day of suffering that is to come. You know that training is important and, and, and preparing yourself is important because you know it's going to hurt. You know you're going to uh, spend some time suffering in the course of that day. And so week before last, I had a sinus infection and I just couldn't run. I didn't feel great. And that was kind of discouraging because I kind of fell behind in my, in my training. And so first of this week, I went out for my first run and I was a mile into it, okay? So follow this with me. One mile, 25.2 to go, okay? And I'm just hurting. Like the hip is just screaming at me. And I'm thinking, this is just terrible. I'm discouraged. This is, this is awful. I was running in Houston at my, at my in-law's house. And, and so I, I started thinking about something else. That's the trick is if your, your body's hurting, you just start thinking about something else. And so I was thinking about this message and this, this scripture and what I wanted to share with you today. And, and, and I turned left and went, uh, went up a bridge and I looked off to my left. And this is what I saw. I saw this picture. This was at the end of the day, so the sun is setting there off, off in the distance. And I had been running away from the sun, so I hadn't seen it. And when I turned left, uh, there was trees there, so I still couldn't see it. I, it was only when I came up on the top of this bridge that looking over to the left, suddenly there was this beautiful image. The sun setting there in the horizon, and you, you see the light from the sun just, just splashing color all over the rest of the sky. And it was one of those moments where I just had to stop because it was just so beautiful. It's just one of those moments where you're, you're, you're taken aback by the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. You've had a moment like that. You've stood at the shoreline and felt the waves on your feet and looked out at the ocean and just thought, wow, it's beautiful. This is amazing. It's such a, such a beautiful picture of God's glory and God's majesty, this, this creation that surrounds us every single day. You, you've, you've stood on the side of that mountain and looked over that valley at that, at that tremendous sight, and you've thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. We've got, we got parents here who, who received a child, who, who received that blessing. As many of you know that experience of just, whoa, what just happened? That's amazing. God showed up, and, and you have a moment like this, you see something like this, and you just, I don't know about you, but I can't help, cannot help but think that the God who did this somehow connected to my life as well, and those are moments for me, I, maybe this is, I don't know how you feel about it, but there are moments where that just leaves me in awe, moments when I'm reminded of hope, moments when I'm reminded of possibility, Moments when I'm reminded that God has planted in my heart some extraordinary dreams. But what really captured me by this image, why, why I stopped and took a picture and thought, that's the sermon right there, just that picture, was that the picture was taken through these bars that were there to keep you from falling off the bridge onto the train tracks below. And I thought, that's what life, that's what life is often like. 
we see a picture of possibility. We see a dream that we have for our life, something off in the distance. We, 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 are retur- we return ourselves to this, this image of hope and glory and brilliance and God's majesty at work in the world. And we have this, this knowledge, this understanding that that's somehow connected to our life as well. But we often see that through the lens of what we perceive to be the reality of our limitations. The circumstances that we face, what what might actually happen for us, and what might just be some distant dream that will never, ever come true. How many nights, how many nights through tears had Elizabeth prayed? God, I want to have a child. I want to have a son. I want to have a daughter. How many nights had she cried out to God? How many nights had had Zechariah joined her in those prayers? God, why? Why have we not been able to have a child? They'd come to a point in their life where they had to simply accept that that hope was not going to be fulfilled and that dream was not going to come true. But then God decided to surprise them. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. Could that happen in your life too? Could God in this season of surprise be about to surprise you as well? Let me ask it this way. What if that marriage isn't over? What if that relationship that you treasure so much that has simply taken a wrong turn, what if that really could be healed? What if that thing that has shown up in your life, that that you have prayed for God to remove some, some sort of setback or suffering or hurt or sin, what if that really could be set aside? What if the grief you feel today especially in this holiday season as you think about someone you have lost, what if that grief really could be swallowed up? And what if, even more amazingly, what if God, by his grace, might transform that grief into something that he would use for good? What if there is a prayer that you prayed so long ago you can't even remember that in these days, God is about to fulfill. Could that happen in your life the same way that it happened in Elizabeth's life and Zechariah's life? And if so, what would that be? What is the dream? What is the hope that you may have set aside that in these days, God might want to come true. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we ask that as we walk through this story, preparing ourselves again to celebrate the coming of our King, that you would remind us of your glory and your brilliance 
and your majesty and remind us, Lord, that our lives are connected to that. Help us, Lord, to see what you see, to understand what you understand, to see possibility and hope in those circumstances, Lord, where, where maybe we have, we have let it go. And in this season, Lord, to prepare our hearts and our lives for you to surprise us again. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.